Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. This is Taylor Dennis, our Senior Wealth Design Specialist and Vice President of Alchius Financial. And I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Williams. Hello, everybody. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the founder and president of Altius Financial, and I'm really glad you're listening to us. A lot of these episodes, we've been uh, talking about self-improvement, stuff like that. I wanted to catch up with you. I know you yeah. joined a gym recently. How's that going? It's going great. It, it's, it was interesting because I actually joined this gym because of Dave, because he decided he wanted to join this specific gym. I was already doing yoga, as you and I have talked about. And so I had a little bit of an overlap and I was going, oh gosh, like I, I typically have a little bit of a budget for free stuff. And my whole budget was just, let's just cover the whole budget on athletic, going to two different gyms at the same time and trying to balance that. So it's been fun. I, I've been sore lately just because That's <laughs> the good. additional fitness. But, making progress. Yeah, but making some progress. I think it's been fun. Well, so today we want to talk about 1031 exchanges, which may sound foreign to some of our listeners about what the heck does that mean? And hopefully we can make this interesting. I mean, it may be you know, those people who are owners of real estate, especially, you know, like if they have rental property or something like that, their ears might perk up and say, this might apply to me. But hopefully we can make it educational and interesting to everyone. I mean, it is part of the tax code that allows someone to utilize when they're buying and selling rental, especially rental real estate or investment real estate property. And my own experience with these kinds of investments may inform people. But before we get too far down the path, let's do our always present disclaimer. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No advisor-client relationship is formed by the broadcasting of this episode or your listening of what we say. The use of this information or any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content in this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific financial advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner, or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, feel free to reach out to us through our website, which is altiusfinancial.com, or contact us directly by email at taylor at altiusfinancial.com or michael at altiusfinancial.com, just so you're aware that is a-l-t-i-u-s-financial.com. So, Mike, since you've had some experience in this area, I both personally and with helping both of us helping clients through this and think through that whole process, let's maybe just start off with a basic question. I mean, what the heck is a 1031? We have all these numbers that we go through with clients. 1031, 401k, 403b, 527, 529. <laughs> I mean, you, usually when, when you have a financial person, either an investment advisor or an accountant, using that kind of number language in front of some concept, it's referring to IRS code, right? That's all yep. it means. And there's yeah. a section in the IRS code that allows for people to do tax-free or tax-deferred exchanges of property, of like-kind property. And so you're right, I have had some experience. I've had rental property. Um, and that I think that helps me as a advisor to our clients. Even if you're even if a client isn't interested right now or has never or never will be interested in owning rental real estate, that just gives them a, a background experience, you know, more full context in terms of giving that professional, seasoned time-tested advice that we're used to giving to clients. I think you know having some experience in the rental business does make us better advisors. I probably do need to give even a little more of a 
a disclaimer because you know, this topic involves technical questions around the tax code, as I mentioned. And we're not tax advisors. We don't claim to be tax advisors. Much of what we talk about in the context of investment planning and financial planning obviously affects your taxes. And so taxes are part of it. But oftentimes we have to say, okay, in, in certain respects, we need to direct you to you know a tax preparer, tax advisor, someone who's got that expertise. And so a lot of what we're talking about, again, is in a general educational nature. And anyone who's contemplating a 1031 exchange or selling of real estate should make sure they're including their whole team. Yeah. That said, you know, a 1031 exchange is, is a transaction that's allowed by the IRS code. And it's a method so taxpayers can continuing deferring the, the capital gain on a sale of certain kinds of assets, most often real estate. And so when, when people are selling a qualifying property, you know, a property that's been, say, for example, a rental property, they can defer their taxable gain if they purchase a new property, a new similar light, what they call like kind property within a certain period. And there are definite rules, timing rules, and, and other kinds of rules and restrictions. So it's very important that people follow it. They were originally called Starker Exchanges. It's funny, named after the family in the 1970s who tested this rule. You know, they originally said, well, I don't want to pay a capital gain on this sale because I'm going to buy another property. And, and they went to a tax court and the law evolved around that to give you know, specific guidance and rules about what qualified and what, what is qualified in terms of this kind of an exchange and what doesn't. Okay. Well, so does this really have to be a rental property? I mean, lots of our clients have rental properties, but what about the clients who don't have rental properties? Could they do this on their primary residence? So if you own a primary residence, it, that's not the idea for 1031. There are a whole separate set of rules, and we should point this out, with regard to personal residence taxation, there is a way to defer capital gains through what's called a ten, section 121. And, and you know, most people haven't even heard of that either. It's, it's commonly referred to the home sale exclusion in the IRS code. And it just allows people to exclude capital gains from the sale of a personal residence. And that means uh, it, it can only be applied to their personal primary residence, not a second property, but you know where they live primarily. And in 2023, that home sale exclusion allows for each individual taxpayer to exclude up to 250000 from the sale of a property. And so that usually means for, for joint taxpayers, couples, you know, 500000 is is the exclusion that they get. So let, let me just add in a little note here. So if I bought a property for, let's say, $500,000, now I go to sell it for, for $1 million, that's where that 500000 because that net amount is what you'd have as that taxable gain. That is what you're excluding. Right. So if, if a person buys a $500,000 property and, I don't know, two or three years later, they sell it for 500000 there's obviously no gain that's happened on there, so they don't have any taxes anyway. But we're talking about in the case where, you, as often the case, uh, you know, over the last decade, lots of real estate has appreciated in value. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for that. And, you know, we've talked, you know, in, in other episodes about how that works. You know, what, what are the causes for that kind of appreciation, whether it'll continue, all that kind of stuff. But if you have appreciation on a house, you're oftentimes, you know, worried about or concerned about, okay, now do I have to pay taxes because I sold this house? Well, that's what we're talking about. As a residence, you get 250 per person or 500,000 of gain per joint taxpayer that, that doesn't have to be uh, taxed. Is there any limit on the 1031? Because we've talked about how there's a limit for the exclusion of the gain up to the 500,000 for a couple through that section 121. If I'm doing a 1031, is there a limit on how much I can exclude there? Like, could I have a million dollars? Could I have 
$2 million? You absolutely can. And it has to be considered a business property. And oftentimes people think, well, what this is just real estate, right? But but in a sense, it's real estate business. You know, you, if you have a rental property or a commercial property, for example, you know, like a, a warehouse or maybe a storage facility or, you know, whatever it might be, you have some kind of business property but there is no cap for that kind of capital gain deferral. You know, it could be, like you said, millions of dollars. And you mentioned the like kind. I mean, what works there for a like kind property? Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. This is, again, where you want to talk to a tax expert because real property that is like kind, the terminology is if it's the same nature, character, or class, and the quality or grade doesn't matter. So you can, you know, you can buy, you know, uh, let's say you have a rental property in downtown Denver, a high-end condominium or something, and then you could buy, you know, you know, in some much lower desirable neighborhood, another uh, property. It doesn't have to be the same kind of class or, or construction or whatever. It's got to be the same purpose. So, and it can be, you know, if you have raw land, you can actually exchange a gain or a property of raw land that has a gain on it to, for example, a building or an office building can be exchanged for a set of rental houses. And a single asset can be exchanged for multiple assets. So you can say, okay, I'm selling this million dollar property and now I'm buying four different condominiums with it. Yeah. Um, that can work as well. Another thing to, you know, that's crucial to keep in mind is that the new property to be fully protected in terms of the capital gain must be of equal or greater value. So you can't, in the case of that million dollar property, they said, you can't say, okay, I'm gonna buy a million dollar property and it has, let's say a half million. They'll say, I paid a half million dollars for it. Now I have a half million dollar capital gain. And now I wanna buy you know, a $300,000 condo and put that money into it and say, well, okay, you can't, protect the full gain then because it's not equal or greater. Yeah. So at that point you'd have, you'd still have a little bit of taxes coming yep, out there. Absolutely. What is the timeline for the 1031 exchange? I know there's lots of rules around, you have to observe the property. You have to say, okay, I'm, these are the ones I'm considering. Now this is the one I'm actually going to go with. What does that timeline look like? Yeah, that's, this is one of the most important parts of, of considering a 1031 exchange is timing is really a big piece of it. And so that's, it's really important for someone to plan. And that's all about our, you know, that's that's our wheelhouse is helping people plan, is thinking through the implications of their actions and what will happen to the rest of their financial situation. So planning is a big deal. You, you have to identify potential replacement properties, and you have to do that within 45 days after you close on the prior property. So usually people are kind of loading, loading themselves up ahead of time, right? They're thinking before they close on their existing sale. In fact, maybe even before they list it, uh, they're thinking about, okay, what kind of other properties might I want to buy? And and be able to identify in that, that fairly short 45-day window after I close. So first of all, you've got to identify three. And I say three. There's there's a number of different ways to go about it. The IRS has given some flexibility in, in how and, and what you identify, but not on the timing. That the 45 days is, is crucial to be aware of. So within that 45 days, you can identify any three properties, regardless of value. You can also identify an unlimited number of properties whose combined value doesn't exceed 200% of the relinquished property, the prior property. Okay. You also could do an unlimited number of properties whose combined value exceeds 95% of the relinquished property. So there's a multiple different criteria the IRS might have for that 45-day window in terms of what you're identifying. And you might say, well, why am I, you know, why is there all this flexibility? There's all kinds of market things that could change. You know, in anticipation of selling a property, you might be thinking, okay, this this is something that I want to buy, but before you know it, it's already been sold by, you know, bought by somebody else. So they're given some flexibility there. Again, not on the timing of identification or close, 
But in terms of how you can structure it to say, okay, I can actually do this successfully. I can actually acquire a new property successfully that meets these kinds of criteria. And part of it, I mean, 200% of the, you know, the relinquished property value that to me, that some of that's like arbitrary. I mean, the IRS, yeah. and I view that frankly, is oftentimes the IRS code is arbitrary. You know, where the hell did they come up with that rule? But yeah, what is that for? <laughs> that's the rule that they have. Yeah. In each instance of those examples that I gave, you can close on one or more of the identified properties when it's time to finalize that purchase, but you have to close within 180 days after the prior close. And that so that 45-day window after the close and then six months or 180 days, and it's to the day. I mean, if you miss it by a day, you could blow up the whole thing in terms of protecting that capital gain. So it's important to pay pay really close attention to that planning aspect. So Mike, what, what has been your personal experience with these? I know you've had rental real estate over the years. What what has been some of your personal experience? Well, like you said, I've had the opportunity to own uh, various rental properties over the course of my lifetime. And in my own case, it's been with that kind of real estate, not farms or office buildings. You know, it's been residential rentals, either a house, you know, I've owned multiple houses at times, or uh, condominiums, uh, townhouses, those kinds of things. I'd say mostly it's worked pretty well, but I, I also want to make a couple of, you know, sort of financial planner caveats or, you know, little yellow flags. I mean, first of all, I, and I say that you hear this and you probably say it now all the time, you know, no one is in the 100% tax bracket, at least not yet, right? <laughs> we kind of joke yeah, about gosh, that. Gosh, I hope not. <laughs> and actually, you know, historically, I mean, for, from a purely tax bracket standpoint, most Americans are in a fairly low tax bracket regime. Now, a lot of loopholes, deductions have been eliminated from the tax code. So in a sense, I mean, I don't really mean this literally because I think they could simplify it a lot more and we could go on about my view on the tax code forever and we don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. But it's important for people to realize that the tax tail shouldn't wag the overall financial dog in a, in a sense of, you know, you don't want to have your first priority be tax savings. Anyone out there, financial advisor, real estate salesperson, you know, anybody out there can lose your money, can find a way to get tax write-offs by losing your money, right? That's not the point. The point is to enhance your overall after-tax risk-adjusted returns on your, your financial nest egg in your portfolio. So, so don't, you know, have this 1031 be the motivation entirely. And, and I, you know, I have to head that weighed out before. The most recent property I did this with, you know, I was like, well, I'm selling a property and I have a pretty big capital gain. Oh, I'll go ahead and pay the capital gain. Yeah. And the problem is that you have this conversation with your accountant, like we've recommended, or you kind of go through this in your own mind and go, well, I just don't want to write that capital check to the IRS. So that motivates you to look for other real estate or to do something like that. And and that's been, you know, that was most recently, uh, I came closer to paying taxes uh, than I ever have, but I just decided, no, I'm, I'm interested in other real estate. And so I want to go ahead and protect that capital gain. Yeah. So what was really like the expectation versus reality on the more recent one that you've had in this in this past year or so? Well, in this case, it was a mountain property, kind of a ski, you know, resort type mountain property in Summit County, Colorado. And I wasn't using it as much. And it was the property had, I bought that property new. It was a new build and it was maturing. And, and the thing with mountain resort property is you have this sort of life cycle of it where, 
you know, it's brand new and it's, uh, you know, exciting and, you know, maybe your family is using it, maybe it's not, and maybe uh, you have lots of rental income, maybe not, but there's a maturation process where the property itself is going to start to need, you know, more maintenance, right? Yeah. More work. And it depends on how well that property is maintained, how, how well the HOA is run. You know, because usually, you know, in that kind of situation or with any commonly held property, you know, condo or townhome, you're going to have other owners who are part of the decision making process with regard to the HOA. So that was part of my process in terms of deciding, uh, you know, this is a mature property. It's been run pretty well so far, but I don't know about the future HOA. Yeah. And there were also restrictions coming down in uh, Summit County about uh, for Airbnb type rentals or short term rental properties. They were getting, they're clamping down on that. And that's a whole different political discussion we could talk about, you know, is, you know, how do we get more affordable housing and rental in, in mountain properties or even in Denver? You know, that's a different topic, which I have lots of opinions on. Someone could ask me about them. <laughs> but that was part of the motivation. I'm like, okay, Summit County is, is signaling, you know, this is going to be a harder business to make money in as far as short-term rentals. And, you know, the, for a variety of reasons, the, the timing seemed appropriate. And so that's part of what went into my calculus. On the new property, I was looking at a couple of different, really different scenarios. And one seemed to work out pretty well for me. And I went ahead and pulled the trigger on that one. But it's important to have people have clear expectations versus the reality of how much they'll save. And again, you want to walk through the scenarios with your accountant. That's a, a, I keep emphasizing that planning is, is, is crucial in terms of taking advantage of this provision in the tax code. Yeah. Well, and so was this more recent 1031? Was this your first 1031? Or have you have you done many of these before personally? Or This is probably the fourth 1031 exchange I've done with my own personal financial circumstances. And, and certainly we've had lots of clients who've been involved in rental real estate, and we've helped them uh, through that as well. There's a number of different parties involved in the process. There is what we call a qualified intermediary. And that's, that's a term that maybe some people haven't heard of. That's the company often, you know, usually it's a company who's taking escrow or control of the funds once the first property is sold. So upon the sale of that first property, you first of all should make sure it's in the contract. You have a provision that says, I can, as a part of this transaction, roll it and use a 1031 exchange. But then you don't get the money at the close. And that's kind of a weird thing. You know, when you sell something, you want the proceeds. You know, if you sold a car, you'd want the money. Yeah. Like, Give me the money. Show me the money. In this case, the IRS says you have to have what's called a qualified intermediary. And that's just a fancy phrase for someone who's going to charge you money to hold your money. Yeah. And make sure you comply with the IRS rules. And they don't give you interest on the money. That's part of their business model is they, they're basically, in a sense, using your money in escrow for that time period, you know, that, you know, potentially six month time period that they're, that they're holding on to your funds uh, and you pay them for privilege. Uh, so that's an expense yeah. and you have to be aware of that. Well, so I think it's helpful to know, so you did more recently, at least you did a full 1031 exchange from one property to another property. We talked about how, well, you're not necessarily limited to just going to one property and you're not necessarily limited to having the same exact type of property. I think this is probably a good time to talk about maybe the the DST Delaware Statutory Trusts. Is there anything you wanted to add on No, I think that's, that's, that's a good point to bring up. That's a really crucial thing because that's, that's an option that we have now that allows for someone to be less involved in the management. I did want to point out, uh, you know, you, you asked, you, you said I did a full one. This latest one I did, actually, some of the properties that I had identified were certainly more expensive than the one I sold. Okay. But of the ones that I that I identified, one of them I negotiated well on, and it just seemed to be uh, the market case where I got it for a better deal 
but it actually was less expensive than the one I sold. Oh, okay. And in that case, that meant I do own I I do own some capital gains. They call it boot. If you, you know, the the term is boot, and all that means is that bit that you if you sell a property that's less valuable or less lower price than the one you sold at, if you buy one that's at l- lower price than the one you sold at, that's called boot, which means you do own some capital gain taxes. And that's the case in my own circumstances. Now, I, I was okay with that because I think I got a pretty good deal on the new one. But back to your point about Delaware statutory trusts. We've used the term DST as an abbreviation, but that's what it stands for. And Delaware has some of the most creative lawyers in corporate law in America. And I think that's a really good thing. But they have legally have come up with something that's acceptable to the IRS that says, okay, you can go into similar kinds of real estate, or we'll call it like-kind real estate, with this kind of trust that will act like a professional manager of your funds. And so you don't have to manage the real estate anymore. And this is a perfect, perfect opportunity for someone who doesn't want to be involved in or hire uh, a separate manager. In, in many cases, like for example, my my mountain property, I had a professional manager up there. I wasn't going to go up there and let people in, you know, and check them out yeah, or them out you know, take care of the hot tub or anything like clean that. Everything. Yeah. yeah. So we had a professional management company doing that. But in this case, you have an institutional quality manager who's taking funds from prior real estate sales and, and adding, you know, in a sense, they're combining that with lots of other people, but segregated and out. So it does qualify for the IRS to track it in terms of your own personal sale. Now, there's no magic involved. It still is a 1031, which means you're deferring the capital gain. That doesn't mean you erase it. But it can be good for someone who's had experience with rental properties before but doesn't want to deal with that anymore. All they want to do is get a passive check or income. That's a pretty good opportunity. Now, again, with any investment, there's always positives and potential downsides and people need to be aware of the downside is that they're giving up some control when you when you use a dst or delaware statutory trust you're basically now saying i don't have the control and the timing of that sale of the properties and the company might say okay we took your money and we're investing it for you and you've got that deferred capital gain and we're sending you income checks but now we've decided to sell sooner than maybe you wanted to and you have that same issue of okay well i'm going to going to pay capital gains that I deferred before, or I'm going to roll into a new DST program, or am I going to now take it back and buy a new rental property that I manage? So there's all kinds of things that can uh, gum that up a little bit. Yeah. And the interesting thing with the DSTs that I want to clarify. So we've talked about with the the typical 1031, where you're going from a just a normal real estate property that you're purchasing and you're now purchasing another property, you have to buy a property of equal or greater value to avoid all taxes. Now, if you're looking at a DST, those typically have a, a leverage ratio. So they, they've got a certain amount of debt on them. And it's helpful to note when those do come due and the company decides to sell that underlying asset, in order to continue deferring your taxes, you need to keep at least the same or higher debt ratio. So that's another thing to keep in mind. So if you're purchasing your initial one and you go, oh, well, they said they'll give me this larger value because it's got a a high debt ratio, you have to keep in mind that looking four, five, seven, ten years down the road when that likely will be sold, you'll need to find a, a property with a higher debt ratio. So if this is something you're looking at doing, definitely reach out to our team and um, we've helped multiple clients kind of navigate what their best strategy for this type of investment. Right. And in conjunction with their accountant. And like you said, I mean, again, we're kind of listing out all these different caveats, rules, you know, restrictions. And 
again, it can get complex, but it is a good tool for the right person to be able to say, uh, okay, I don't want to pay the capital gains right now on this on this piece of uh, business property. You know, one of the things that I didn't, I failed to mention, we talked about the the restrictions up up front, like. 45 days to identify three properties or the various different rules and then 180 days to close. But one of the things that people sometimes ask is, well, okay, how long do you have to hold the property? Forgetting about DST or anything like that, how long do you have to hold the property? Well, if you want to defer the tax, you have to hold it ongoing because the IRS is tapping their fingers, waiting patiently to say, (laughs) we want you to pay some taxes on that property. Now, if you die with the property, then there's the whole issue of step up and basis. We've talked about that in some of our estate planning conversations on other episodes. What that boils down to, at least under current law, is that all capital gains on real estate or financial securities, portfolios that we might manage, those right now, again, under current law, have what's called a step up and basis, which means your heirs will inherit them and and that kind of erases that capital gain so to speak you know they don't have to they can sell it the next day and they won't unless it had massive appreciation or a bunch of appreciation in one day yeah. upon after your death uh, then you know they they're going to pay a capital gain or loss based upon the valuation upon your death versus the potential much bigger capital gain that would have happened over the course of multiple years during your life. Now that brings up a kind of a loophole-ish type of thing. And people have asked me about that in my own circumstances. You know, when you have a second piece of property or a rental property, like I did in the mountains and someone says, well, okay, what happens if you decide to move into that new property? Yeah. And now it's, is Don't it a residence? Don't you want to live in the mountains? Yeah. Or, or, or even the one I sold. I mean, so I sold yeah. the mountain property. Now I bought another one here in town. How long do I have to hold on to that? Now, again, crucial thing to talk to your ta- tax accountant and con- you know consult resources on the IRS code. My understanding is that there's a sort of a two-year safe harbor rule where you know if you your intent and this is what the IRS is really talking about if your intent is to have this as a business rental property which in my case it is yeah. and then you you know for some reason change your mind decide to occupy that same property and convert it so to speak into your own personal residence then now does it you know does it apply to the the section 121 rules or is it 1031 rules yeah. you know how does that shake out well there's like i said considered to be a two year safe harbor rule if you've held on to that rental property and did your best effort to make it a successful business and rental property and you're showing rental income and you're doing all those kinds of things for two years then potentially you might be able to convert it again you know must uh you know buyer beware uh, lots of caveats talk to your accountant but there is that that provision as well yeah that's that's really helpful to note because I, I think there's probably situations and I, I can think of plenty of my friends who would say, oh, I'd love to have, yeah, rental property in the mountains or rental property in another location. And at some point you go, well, maybe the goal is that I, I could live there. And so you want to make sure you're you're talking with your tax accountant. You're making sure that if you're doing this 1031 type of strategy, you're not just going, OK, I got the taxes out. Now let's Move on in, yeah. grab the moving boxes. Yeah, and again, you, you still have some capital gains rules that apply to a personal residence. So you're not just, you know, yep. totally erasing it, but there are some caveats, some uh, places in the tax code that say, okay, here's a different way to strategize. And, and maybe this is a, a good place to wrap up on this is, yeah. you know, all these things, all these rules that the code, the IRS code has do, in a sense, incent or maybe require some planning. And, you know, that's partly why we have... Uh, have a role here. I mean, many of our clients want us to to be able to help them think through 
the planning aspect in conjunction with their accountant and other professionals, other team members, uh, so to speak, uh, how to best maximize their own financial situation. And that's what we're here for. And that's what we do. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so if, if this brought up any questions for any of you, please feel free to reach out to us, uh, Michael at AltiusFinancial.com or Taylor at AltiusFinancial.com. We're more than happy to help kind of discuss your current financial situation and how we might best help you navigate these types of situations. Um, otherwise, I, I hope this was fun, informative, interesting conversation for you, and I hope you capitalize on your weekend, enjoy your weekend, and have a great great day. Have a great day. Have a great weekend and uh, let us know what you want to hear more about. Yeah. Thanks.